This is Swampside Chats, a podcast where communists sit down to shoot the shit about current events, history, political economy, and theory. This episode, we conclude our conversation with Tom O'Brien about the fundamental principles of communist production and distribution. Okay, here we are, part three. We're almost through this big old stack of pancakes. Of the fundamental principles of communist production and distribution. So where did we leave off last time? Did you say chapter five? We finished chapter five, I think, but... Uh, that sounds I don't, right. We don't want, yeah, we don't want... We, I don't know if we need to go to every second chapter. Okay, we could probably... I mean, we could probably take, like, the general... Talk about the general, you know, takeaways of each section broadly. Mm-hmm. Yeah, yeah, we could do that. Because um, like a big concept is introduced in the next one, uh, general social labor and the idea of like the GSU establishments, and so it's my understanding that the GSU establishments are basically would be functions that you know for the most part are fulfilled already by the state. Things like you know ship, like postal service, pretty much anything that isn't like directly involved in production and is like. Uh, Something that a commodity that or an experience that you consume at the point of service, so they're getting a haircut or whatever, um, and these things would, in this system, uh, not be remunerated in labor chits, but rather there would be like out of like the general, I guess out of a tax on like the productive sector more or less would go to fund these establishments and then they would pay out time chits to their workers within it. Uh, that's my understanding. Yeah, I would say that just like just to clarify a little bit, it, it's not to do with whether there is a physical product or a service. It's literally just whether this is based on a need or based on your 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 paying with your time chit. So, like for example, like uh, you know, massages might be the, the people might decide, oh, massages should be you know something everybody gets for free at the point of need, or they could be something you have to pay with your labor chit. It just it like it's not so much whether it's a physical product or a service, but it's like something that the society as a whole decides this should just be free. Yeah, uh, they do say that at first they would assume that GSUs would primarily be things without physical products, but that it's not a necessary relationship. You know, like you could decide to make films free or like, you know, go to the movies free, for example. Yeah. Or you could pay for it. You could say, well. No, we're not going to subsidize that as a community. So that's along the lines of it. But that's pretty much it. And they just get into like the equation for how basically it's kind of like a communist kind of idea of a taxation rate. You know that that if I you you add up all the amount of uh, hours of labor and means of production, everything that goes into this you know communist side of production, if we want to call it, or consumption. You know, you consume like your schools in a communist way. Everybody just gets it for free, like, and you see, you you count up all the costs of that, and then you basically take that out of the stock of uh, of people's wages, essentially the cost of all of that, and it's like a tax rate. So you might say, oh, everybody's paying twenty percent tax to get our hospitals, our schools, you know, the cinemas, uh, massages, whatever the hell, free. 
books, libraries, whatever the hell. And um, he also gets into some technical stuff to do with like when you've got um, mixed industrial establishments. So like you might have a a uh, electricity company, I think is the example to use that um, the uh, the GSU they 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 basically give electricity free maybe to the to this to these communist the schools and stuff, but also the uh, um, they might actually ch- they they would charge uh, the productive enterprises for the electricity, and so it gets into how you would account for that. But that's the general that's the general gist of it. It's extremely it's extremely elegant, I think. Because he, he talks in places like, say, for example, like I'm living in Woolwich here in London and it's kind of run down. And say they say, well, we want like, you know, a really cool new swimming pool or something that in your locality, you could say, well, that's going to cost us, you know, 25 million pounds to build this new pool. And in like the general area, you could all say, do we want that? And you go, yeah, OK. And so you say, well, that'll be, you know, one and a half percent more tax from everybody for this cool new swimming pool in your neighborhoods do you want to pay that and they'd say yes and so your your contribution so your tax rate locally could be higher if you want to build this stuff and it allows the local fic is what they call this kind of tax rate to to vary based on what the hell people want to do themselves i think it's just really really elegant yeah i guess what tripped me up was like how i guess the question i had you know earlier on in reading this was mainly you know how you basically scale up to like wider and wider like swaths of like you know the planet in terms of like managing all this stuff and determining these rates um but that's kind of like it's really beyond the scope of this book the book is basically just designed to lay out some of the fundamental principles that would underpin the economics of you know a communist society and not not necessarily to explain how like administration would work even though they're obviously interrelated yeah, like they barely, he, he basically mentions, or they basically mention like, you know, workers, congresses deciding on large scale projects, maybe once or twice in the entire book. It like literally does not even get into the general idea of how the specifics of the organization would work. Just purely what the base structure and the social relations at base have to be to make the thing like actually be a communist society and not just a, a a form of state capitalism or whatever we want to call that. There is a um there is a section in the communist accumulation <laughs> chapter where they studiously avoid the word growth um where they're talking about building infrastructure projects, how this is leveraged by social democrats as a way of discrediting anything without a state, you know, a state control board or something, some kind of central control. And I mean, yeah, essentially not very many concrete proposals are given. It's just reasserted that, you know, using average social reproduction time, you can science this out better than you could with the Central Statistics Bureau. Yeah, right. It doesn't really have much to say about, you know, like we're how you would basically prioritize things and how they would determine exactly like it's basically just making a case for labor chits and you as as the substitute thing to having money and as basically the medium by which you could have some kind of I mean not substance of value but some common denominator along which you can apportion things and plan out um, 
you know, basically plan out the use of like human labor power and plan out, you know, how you're basically interchanging these different like pro- like produced use values. Um, but ha- but what yeah, that what it, that what that it, means? It in is terms tempting of, like, to say substance of value because they explicitly make the they explicitly make the connection that value is the capitalism as average social reproduction time is the communism. Like they explicitly make that point. Yeah. I would say it goes a little bit as well beyond just a calculation device, because I think fundamental to the idea of, of the setup uh, described here uh, is with the relationship of the producer to the product. And the idea when you are paid in your labor hours and say you have your general taxation rate, everybody pays, but you have a direct relationship to your product based on your labor. And the alternative to that that we saw, say, in all of the experiments pretty much uh, so far throughout history and socialist experiments is that you end up with a state bureaucracy which maintains a price uh, policy determines what the tax rate is on this or that or what the price of this uh, specific thing is and also what are the accumulation rates we're going to do where we're going to do it how we're going to decide on the stuff that when you uh, break the re- when you break the relationship between the producer and the product that's where you go so 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 fundamental to the whole thing is that it's keeping the the link between the 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 producer and the product at the base of the society is actually what is kind of fundamental to uh not just allowing a say a, a you know a price to be uh calculated in a kind of an answer to the uh, von Mises and uh, and um uh, Weber but like uh it also it it also allows uh the relationship between the producers and what is going to be done to be like a unity and i, I like that's that's the beauty of it right and when it renders like social relations more transparent to people in that it's much more the math in terms of calculating like inputs and outputs is very simple and transparent to everybody because you can see where things are deviating from a socially average labor time and not so you, there's like a certain degree of accountability, like inter-firm. The other thing is too, like it, because if you're being remunerated in labor hours, that puts limits onto what like an individual can quote unquote accumulate, and it also yeah renders things more transparent in that you know even if you're being taxed or whatever, it's very clear that you're like what's being taken out is going towards something that you benefit from in like uh, in society if only indirectly. Um, and because nobody can like accumulate any of this stuff, like like the money, the labor tokens or money or whatever, it doesn't have like this kind of, you know, mystifying effect that you get from you know this thing that is like capital V value that you can accumulate and then turn into something that turns into more versions of itself, right? It's literally just it's very much tied to like what your own actual uh, contribution to society is. Yeah, you could save up, but you can't do like capitalist accumulation where you invest in something that just gives you labor hours you didn't do. Um, I should I should say it was average social average social production time. I said reproduction before. I meant average social production time. Okay, yeah, no, I was just going to say like uh, we could literally just deal with accumulation really quickly as well and how that works. Yeah, yeah, let's do accumulation because like 
it's it's pretty funny to me reading this that like the word accumulation is used instead of something maybe a little more neutral because accumulation is usually associated with capitalism and it's the it's the unique thing about capitalism in like the marxist and and in you know honestly this is this was true about the marxian framework but this ends up just true about most you know, like most economic points of view is that like you could stack up a little bit of surplus in pre-capitalist formations but the one that allows you to do accumulation is capitalism uh, i think we know we know this today in a way as like growth you know like build up um because that's the way that he ends up using it it's not like self-expanding value it's a targeted negotiated like expansion of the economy yeah so like you know the idea would generally be like society would somehow you know decide well you know either we want like less hours so we need more machines or we want more stuff you know both are essentially the same under communism uh and it's not a a a growth that's kind of comes in the system through the dynamic of cutting labor costs that kind of driven productivity it's a it's a chosen rate of communist accumulation so but i mean they make the point as well that like if you're going to accumulate in, in, in a communist socialist society like what it explicitly means is that less consumption less consumption by the workers and so what it actually means is that in essence is that if you want to expand by like five percent next year essentially you're going to add five percentage points of instead of going to consumption you're going to put it into that general tax rate so if the tax rate was 20 percent and we want to accumulate next year well the, the that means our tax rate say will be 25 percent this year and that money then is then spent on you know expanding production so that, that's the general gist of the idea it's very very simple you know and and they leave up like he leaves all the ins and outs of how it would do like typically it would be done they talk a little bit like if it was like if you had 20 shoe factories you know it's up to the shoe guild to decide you know factories guild to decide well you know uh this factory over here has got crappy machinery that's where we're going to spend our accumulation budget and 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 so on and so forth but the general simple is that idea is that the accumulation rate is like would be a democratically decided thing and it would be completely transparently implemented and and it could be specifically towards certain goals they might have an accumulation thing say say we want to double our housing or our, our good housing in the next 10 years so literally all that accumulation goes towards housing that that could be the actual decision well i mean presumably you know by default you would want to have like some level of accumulation just because you know population is going to continue to increase because there's productive forces to feed people and you'll want to have a, a continually a continual expanding outlay even abstracting away, away from you know, basically bringing in the remnants of the peasantry in the third world into like a modern, you know, industrialized civilization. Jake, do you have kids? What, what's that? <laughs> do you have kids? No. What's up? Yeah. No, I'm joking. I'm just, I was like making the point is like, you know, I think under a communist society, people would probably be happy with two or three. I don't think the, I don't think we'd feel the urge to have 10. You know what I mean? I feel like. But I feel like still, there will still be some level of population growth. I mean. 
Could be or mightn't be. Who knows? I don't, I'm, like, I'm not making a case either way. That's all I'm saying. Under conditions of like economic security, family size tends to go down. So it's reasonable to think that, you know, most people under communism wouldn't be just pumping them out, let's say. Like, but that's neither here nor there. The, the point is, is that there's, I think, I think probably what's most salient for communist political economy, and this is something noted in the book, is that in order to get to higher stage communism, you have to overcome like scarcity in a big way. So there's going to be a systematic bias towards some type of productivism. Now, this is perhaps questionable on some ecological grounds because this communist political economy does seem to have the, frankly, you know, bourgeois bias that infinite growth is possible on a finite planet. But I do think some of the qualifications to the old historical materialist schema that we talked about in the ecology and historical materialism episode, materialism episode, relevant here that, you know, we are also talking about increases in efficiency in the productive forces like resource efficiency. And notably, the author also believes that in the first like immediate in, in the immediate transformation to communism, you're going to be doing away with a lot of capitalist waste. So you probably don't need to right off the bat expand production. You're going to be able to like absorb like advertising and finance and all this shit that doesn't mean anything anymore and repurpose that stuff. That's going to be a big boon. Yeah. I feel like on some level though, like long term, you would have, there would have to be some level of waste at least in terms of the production of like consumer commodities because you know if you're only basically producing like the same basket of goods you're not really going to know what people actually want you would literally just be producing you know what i'm saying yeah so there probably would be some excess but no no no, that makes sense you're yeah in terms of like ecologically yeah a situation of like heightened managed scarcity i still feel like this would be better than you know whatever kind of like hell world situation that would probably collapse into if we're especially if we're looking at a situation where you know like it got harder to grow food and shit <laughs> so um even but like i think even just having like a high degree of like uh, technological development and computational capacity could make something like this feasible even without even if even if we were at a situation where you know, scarcity reasserted itself in a really nasty way. Yeah, like I, I just think as well, like the, the, the so much of like ca- of capitalist production is even in the sectors that we don't think are wasteful are wasteful. Like your phone, you know how how components are designed so not to be replaceable or fixable. You know, there's massive massive inefficiencies right throughout and i think any type of like communist society would lead to a fundamental reformation of the production like the actual products we have in how they're designed from a from an ecological point and that's massive like like there's no reason why people have to buy a new phone every three years it should literally be like plug and play the component that's gone wrong because you, you can get phones that do last a while but you're right there's there's build obsolescence especially in the higher end phones oddly enough oh yeah, yeah and even thing like your Hoover or something, you know, like these things, you know, like all of these things are designed to have a very specific uh, short lifetime. Like who's had a printer that lasted more than five years? Fucking pieces of shit, man. And you know, it's, I, 
There's this dude on YouTube that I watch who like fix it. He has like runs like a computer fixing shop or whatever. And he seems he's you know he's very like pro you know petty bourgeois pro capitalist mindset. But you see him getting like increasingly anti corporate, just examining like these products and how like they're built to not function, and just getting pissed like every fucking video. You know, it, it, like I saw one where he pointed out like I guess like one of the latest like Apple laptops has a fan that doesn't actually blow on anything. Yeah, it's like a cosmetic fan. <laughs> Uh, you know, anyway. like, it was stuff like that that always made it very feasible to me that capitalism was somehow fettering the forces of production, which to a lot of people seems very dumb. You know, that's a classical historical materialist premise that seems very dumb considering, I mean, I think it's a Cold War mindset, you know, considering that, like, you know, socialism couldn't innovate faster or whatever. Um, but that stuff... A- occurred to me far before I was a Marxist and it made Marxism much more plausible when I realized this was a sort of tendency you could see throughout the economy. It's also something you see in intellectual property. I, so there would be communist growth. I know that sounds terrifying to our ecological our ecologically minded listeners out there, but um, the book continues with an assertion that essentially the proletariat has a right to do accumulation, even irrationally. I think it's useful to imagine like a democratic society, and I'm using this term loosely, you know, a democratic communist society that actually, where everyone actually has a say on how production goes versus a society where there is an elite that make these decisions. Most people that are ecologically minded, at least today, would say, oh shit, the earth's in danger. We need a controlling caste to make all those decisions. You know, we need a we need some kind of credentialed elite to make sure that the earth isn't harmed. But a funny thing happens in the capitalist mode of production. You get a credentialed elite that makes sure that the world is harmed. Like, <laughs> like, um, in theory, having a, an actually democratic world might also open up irrational production decisions. But I think if society was a little more transparent, we got all this data being like, oh shit, we're frying our ecosystem. That this, you know, even this version of the communist, like producerist utopia, whatever, would have a much easier time curtailing its irrationality. A much easier time. Because it would be a matter of conscious intervention. Yeah, like it's very easy to get pissed at like at like you know the apathetic masses or whatever. But it's like, yeah, of course people don't like pay attention to this shit because they don't really get a say, <laughs> you know. Like, like why why should they? Like, you know, not everyone is like you know psychos and masochists like us who like continue to look at this shit, you know, even though like we don't really have any political power or efficacy, you know. So it's I yeah I can see in a society where you de-alienated things, you know, because I mean look at look at just how this is. A, Something Chomsky often points to. Sometimes he would listen to like sports talk radio, and the level of sophistication that people have about how like their local football team is being managed. Uh, you know, you could you could easily apply that to society. Even if not everyone in society was applied, I think you'd have enough people with transparent information that better decisions would be made collectively based on good info. Yeah, one hundred percent. And like, just getting back to the kind of productivity bit a little bit, I would say as well is that like. 
I don't know like what 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 type of jobs you've had, but I've had loads of jobs where we, like the actual workers, you know, on the shop floor, like uh, would have really good ideas for for doing things the right way. And, it, and a lot of times, it's it's management and the you know the class relation or the value form that prevents it. You know, yeah, that's it's everywhere. It's it's funking everywhere, and like that's a massive amount. You know, just like sheer weights. Like I just saw some. Like what was that one I saw on Twitter there yesterday? Is like you know the, all the stuff happening in in uh, Texas with the snowstorm, and they're like they've been chucking out all the stuff, the excess food into the skip outside, and it's fro- freezing outside. So all the meat and everything's been kept like basically in a freezer, and so people were like coming and stealing the stealing, taking the food out of the skip, and they sent like three three like squad cars with like eight cops to <laughs> to stop people stealing the stuff that's in a skip like god damn it like you know that, i know that's kind of maybe a bit a bit of a on the nose one but like that shit's everywhere no everywhere. no no that, that happens uh, that's, all the that's time america in the US, bro. just under like less like dire circumstances sometimes when it's not like you know killing you degrees outside it like Chris Kyle time. used to brag about like sniping like looters at her, during Hurricane Katrina. You know, it's like people are like uh-huh. starving to death, and it's like I'm on a roof shooting them because you know we got to keep our Walmart safe. You know, <laughs> like right. there's a there's some very dark shit. You know that some Rambo motherfucking shit that. Hey, Rambo is at least killing cops in the first movie. In the first movie, <laughs> have you seen the trailer to like the one that came out about eight or nine years no, ago? No, and he's no. he's. He's on like there's some like Viet Cong or something driving like a like a one of those you know open top military jeeps with a mounted like massive machine gun on the back of it, and and R- R- Rambo jumps up and he turns it around and he like starts shooting the guy's head off from like about six inches and his head oh just God. explodes. I swear to God, it's one of the most violent things I've ever seen in my life. And they put it in the goddamn trailer. I was yeah. fucking bowled the- over. Rambo became an express. Rambo at first was like an expression of like how horrible like capitalist society was at the time. I'm reading into it a little bit, but you know this like wounded veteran coming back and using his newfound ability to kill ruthlessly on like cops. Then they turned the series into okay, so how do we win the Vietnam War where it really matters on the screen, even though we lost in reality. So yeah, that series is a bundle of contradictions. Yeah, there there were a bunch of movies like that at the time, but uh, anyway, let's maybe we should re, 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 re Are we back reading into... this? Aren't we reading Zizek's analysis of Rambo? I, oh shit! I read the wrong book. <laughs> oh <Yeah>. no! <laughs> I'm kidding. Yeah. Uh, okay. Anyway, um, <laughs> so where are we, where are we at here? Um, oh, we, we were talking about um, accumulation. Um, I think we've let's see. I think we've done that. I think. Um, let, let me make a couple system, notes. The general, the general couple, accounting, I think, is the next general big bit. A, a couple more notes on accumulation. Um, as you mentioned, uh, Tom, the reason why the production side mathematics are important is because in the USSR and in Hungary, um, they use consumption taxes on top of their price policy. And because this book objects to the price policy, again, bringing up uh, Leichter, who is like their favorite guy to beat up on because he's like half right. And then he does this shit on the production or on the consumption end that drives them nuts. And the price policy is basically 
that mystifying layer between the consumers and being able to make transparent decisions. Um, and I, if you take basic bourgeois economics, you know that consumption taxes are the most regressive taxes, meaning they hit the bottom of the population more than they hit the top of the population. Even in communism, if you're doing consumption taxes, those kinds of things matter. And so basic ass liberal economics on paper, I'm not saying in real life, because in real life, liberals love regressive consumption sin taxes. Um, but you know, you would want to do this on the production side and, or, and, you know, make the math as clear as possible. Don't use distorted price signals. And then, of course, there's a little nod to capital in, in this, in that the simple reproduction assumption is dropped. And so the structure of this book bears a bit of similarity to uh, Marx's capital in that you start with simple reproduction. Then when we talk about accumulation, you drop that. You drop that assumption so that the political economy can expand. Yeah, that's a good point. I never, I never I even noticed it. But yeah, definitely it does model uh, that precisely follows that. All right. General bookkeeping. So what, what new, I don't think anything new is really said in this chapter. Basically that labor certificates are like objective. No, we're not some subjective planning commission, you know, committee, which is like just a, it's a very Marxist obsessed way to frame it. And that like, you know, workers making a collective democratic decision isn't subjective in some sense. I don't know. Like it's not maybe distorted the way the general cartel is. You're dealing with more like transparent information that isn't as mystified, I think is maybe the, or I guess that's this, I guess that's the second chapter. That's the next chapter, but whatever. Yeah. Let, we lump them together. Um, Like the whole idea like that, everything is, like in 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 the second version, he constantly talks about this like office of gyro. <laughs> I I I've never heard gyro used in this. Yeah, what what does he mean by this? It's like the, it's what is what is the the gyro office besides you know delicious replicated Greek style meats. No, like a gyro would be like uh, I I I remember it like they used to talk about it in in England like if you were getting paid something even the dole you might be gyroed to you I think it was like a transfer a bank transfer is where it comes from so basically I think it's getting towards that idea of like uh, a you know bank statement and double account keeping let me just check here it's also the Giro d'Italia so I I, I don't know if it's a uh, <laughs> If it's um, a gyro transfer, yeah, here we go. A gyro transfer, often sh uh, shortened to gyro, is a payment transfer from one bank account to another account, initiated by the payer and not the payee. So basically, it's kind of getting just to the idea of accounts, which is interesting because he talks as well about uh, how that, you know, actual really good accounting was only starting to pop into being around 1920, which, you know, by capitalists, which is uh, interesting I would have thought they had good accountancy before that. I don't know specifically what he's getting to there. But the general idea is that everything will be like, and if we, everything would be put into this general uh, ledger where you could track every single transaction in the entire economy. Like, and like, you know, uh, we talked last time, I think, about how we could go easily go in at a blockchain. And I, I think that's 
absolutely the type of technology that it should be uh, should be used. It's interesting the blockchain spun up in the last few years, but like like I imagine it like to the extent that you should be able to like go to some kind of a equivalent to Google Maps, except it's like you know communist labor time map, and you could literally click on like any product, any any product piece of production follow like you know the product all the way through and see where it goes and understand the whole cycle and be able to look at each firm and each firm within its in it in its uh profile of other like say shoemakers see which ones are more productive which ones aren't see which ones are taking the piss which ones aren't taking the piss like it just would be such an um, um, an amazingly open and like objective way of uh controlling the society it's uh you know it's just a brilliant idea well in a sense like all the information would be centralized and that there would be like a central database through which yeah like any any given commodity that you consume or that is you know you could basically track like the production statistics of everything and so yeah you'd end up with this giant like meta web that you could yeah click through in a way that would yeah break down like every aspect that this is what would render like productive relations in the economy transparent to everyone which would be tremendously useful to make sure that there's no, you know, like backsliding into, you know, some like pre-communist social formations or, I don't know, or, you know, trying to see things getting like, you know, skimmed off into the black market or whatever. And like, I don't, it's not like you have like these, like you don't, it's not even to the extent that you would like have an office, maybe you would have it like of going around and taking uh inspecting all what's going on in this place or that place like it's so open and transparent like it, it can be done by the actual people themselves like you could literally be able to look at like the companies that are operating in your neighborhood or your general area and see like are they taking the piss are they wasting production time are they skimming off us or not like you know and it's all radically open like it reminds me like in, in you know in Sweden, like I was surprised. I was uh, my mate was over in London and he had a record label and he had like a Swedish band over doing a gig and one of the like the bass player or something. I told him I was a computer programmer here in London. And he said he said to me, "Oh, how much, how much, how much are you making?" And I was like, "Oh," uh, and my mate was like, "You can't be asking somebody how much money you're making." And he says, "No, in Sweden we all know like exactly what everybody makes. It's all open. You can just go on the internet." And it's true. Like they literally. They can nearly look and see what your neighbor's making. They make this much. They make that much. And, like, it's actually a fucking really good leveler, you know? It it, it operates well. And the, the fact that all of this stuff is transparent, you know, is is really good. I think, like... And it allows people to... to well, like, it would prevent you also from skimming. Because, like, you know, in the capitalist thing, you know, who the hell's going to go to your... Uh, you know, charter house and check up your self-employment records or books or something. Like, nobody's going to do it. Nobody knows what the hell you're up to, where you got that car from, you know, whatever. But, like, you know, I think there's certainly maybe some issues to do with privacy in consumption by people, like anonymized uh, final consumption records or something like that. But, you know, I just think, no. Like, what if... uh, what if you want to buy like uh, I don't know what's something embarrassing? I what's there? Know. What's there to be embarrassed about? You know what I'm saying? Okay, <laughs> let's say you bought a Bon Jovi album. What's that? that, that Bon Jovi's cool. Like what's? Yeah. 
Damn, I'm struggling here. I'm struggling. Yeah, and literally anything that you're embarrassed about, like you shouldn't be buying. That's not true. Come on. Or yeah. you shouldn't be embarrassed about it. One of the two. <laughs> well, yeah, well, like, I, I, I do think that. Yeah. Let's say you've got. Pe- kind of let's say you've got. Uh, pe- let's say you've got uh, like uh, uh, your penis is not working properly. That's, that's a medical got- issue. That's not embarrassing. <clears throat> I think that's probably really embarrassing for lots of people. Yeah, and that's I, their problem. I, I do think I do think that humanity <laughs> will bear I humanity will probably bear some resemblance to humanity as they are now, so that they will probably be embarrassed by things and not want people to know about certain things that they're doing. Um nah. I don't think that's gonna go away. <laughs> the other thing that would make so going all the way back to accumulation. The other thing that would make this regime of accumulation different than capitalism, but also 20th century socialism, is that this wouldn't be a nation, like, this wouldn't be as tied to a nation state. Because whenever you get into ecology and socialism, you're inevitably going to bring up Chernobyl. You're inevitably going to bring up the way that 20th century socialism actually dealt with the environment. And a big part of that is because they're still part of the, you know, nation state order where you're trying to outcompete the other nation states. And even apart from market incentives, state incentives are towards, you know, are, are towards minimizing are how do I put this? The state incentives are towards like doing as much damage to the environment as possible as long as it gives you an advantage. Like, you could see this in the Chinese state. It's not all market-driven. Like, not all bad things are from the market. So, yeah. this is the only some is just plausible... Pure, right. The, some like, the, some yeah. is just... Some, some is just pure power. It's pure power as opposed to just monetary... Well, I don't know. I feel like it stems more from just, you know, again, like post-industrial warfare. Uh, and some of it's like a remnant of like that, that sort of early 20th century period where like out, the most productive society basically won the war. Um, now I think it's it's actually a little bit different because the technology's changed. Um, but, you know, they're, they're still like, like it, it's weird. I'm actually not sure where I stand on this right now because I do feel like the United States, like the, we are still, ba- we do basically still have an, industrial complex militarily that's kind of geared towards building stuff to fight for like a world war ii style war even though that doesn't exist anymore but some of that just seems like a combination of like bureaucratic and like private sector inertia and that you have this you have these this establishments kind of already built and it injects so much money to the economy that nobody wants to turn it off you know um not to mention of course all the money that comes in from sales from it but i do think that the the hardcore productivism that you see of the ussr and to a certain extent, China, I think, basically stems from that. At least in the Soviet example specifically, China, I feel like they're basically just trying to develop things as fast as they possibly can, which, uh, in, in order to basically compete economically. So, but I don't know if, I don't, I mean, because you can have like, like, it's, yeah, it, it basically results from the situation of global imperialism and you, these inter imperialist rivalries that, inevitably are the result of having like competing national capitals right does that make sense yeah it does make sense i guess i'm bringing this up because it it puts a wedge between the kind of socialism that this 
book is polemicizing against. It doesn't really draw this out, but I think it's important because of, you know, the pronounced importance of ecological issues in the, you know, 90 years since this book was written. Um, it further elaborates its point, more or less, of why would we want to build a society that would give proles, you know, even an irrational right to, or, you know, the right to do even some kind of irrational form of accumulation despite the fact that we're going through an ecological crisis, like from a certain point of view, that doesn't make any sense. Um, and they would prefer some kind of, you know, Lisa Simpson Bureau with all the smart, intelligent, sensitive, environmentally attuned people to preside over the proletariat. This would be a sort of green Stalinist wet dream. Um, <laughs> Well, again, because well, this entire society that we're imagining is post some kind of a, like you know major like revolutionary shakeup where a lot of like these these sort these scores these scores would get settled, you know. Whereas the people who want to have like yeah like the the green like technocrats or whatever, they're not imagining a revolution. Like they're imagining just an extension of the society we live in now. And if you're going to take this society now and jerry rig it to be green, you would probably need something like that. Yeah, I guess um, I am thinking of people like Andreas Malm that are, you know, who wrote Fossil Capital, which is, you know, a great book. Um, and more recently wrote like something about like eco-war communism or like green war communism <laughs> as a as a as a weird, I don't know, like it's weird because it's basically just a Kautsky and revisionist strategy, but it's dressed up in Bolshevist language um, or, you know, a Bernsteinian revisionist strategy dressed up in Bolshevik language. But the, his point is essentially that, we, you know, we need to seize power by any means necessary. Democracy be damned, including the forms of democracy that we have. But the most realistic way to do it is to dive into the democracy we have and, you know, wrest control of the state from the, from the bourgeoisie so that we can save the world. I, I, I guess I'm putting it out there because people do say this stuff, even if it makes zero fucking sense to me, because I don't see where you would be able to do this without popular support. Yeah, the only thing I could think would be like entryism into the military, but even that's going to take like 40 years to get to the top of it. You know, so <laughs> like, I think like, the thing is, for me, is like that if you had a democratic, uh, say you had your your council communist uh, paradise that we're talking about here in the morning, it's like that, you know, the environment is a massive issue for people. And like it would take literally probably less than five years to get rid of all coal production in most of the major countries if the if the will was there. Like a, you would have a massive reorganization of society, uh, energy systems in literally no time if if actually the people had charge of basically the politics, you know, and the economy. People laughed at him a couple of years ago, but at one point they asked Andrew Yang at like one of the debates, like, what would you do about the environment? He said, I'll give people $1,000 a month. And they're like, what? He goes, well, you take the boot off people's necks. Maybe they can start to like give a shit about this more than they do because it it tends if you it pulls very often low on the list of people's priorities, and that's because they have like immediate problems to deal with in terms of reproducing their own life. 
So you take the boot off people's necks, and then maybe they can think about these more like long-term structural problems, which they certainly would, I think. Um, so it's like, yeah, if you had a situation where you were like addressing people's material needs, you know, they can think about. And who who thinks about this stuff more anyway? People who are more materially comfortable, you know, people who aren't working. Like I'm not I'm not working two jobs, you know. So I have time to like drive myself insane thinking about this stuff, um, you know. So it's. Yeah, like to take the boot off. And we even saw like they gave the they threw out a six hundred dollars stimmy here in the states like about a month ago, and a bunch of people used it to try and like you know fuck over some hedge funds by buying GameStop stock, you know, like they took the they took the boot off people's necks for like half a second, and a whole bunch of them tried to like give the bourgeoisie a bloody nose like immediately, you know, like that's I I feel like that says something. Even and obviously only a small percentage of people actually. Now it's like everybody threw it on GameStop, but the number of people who did that is kind of incredible. At the paradox with ecological polling is that you know if you're like, do, should we save the world? People vote yes, but if you say like, you know, what 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 are the things most important to you? It's ec- ecology is very low on the list. And that makes sense, just from short term. Like if you're living check to check. The fate of the world, the fate of the universe or whatever, seems very remote, even if you're going to live through the fate of the world and not the fate of the universe. Yeah, and if it got to a point where, you know, if if this is like we had the 50s-style, like, class compromise, you know, everybody's got two cars, two-car garage and shit like that, and people were being apathetic on it, okay, I'd say maybe we're fucked, but, like, I, I do think that, I do think that if you, if you eased off that a little bit, it would move up on people's, uh, order of priorities and which i think brings us back to like this text and that yeah if we had a society where people's basic needs are being met where people were like active participants in like the administration of the society that they existed in in a meaningful sense then yeah it would be much easier to course correct for something like this and honestly it would probably be easier to course correct if on this if things were more autocratic (laughs) and like the government could just do what they wanted you know well (laughs) i hate to say it well maybe or maybe not. Like in China, obviously not. Like China has the ability to do like all the things that Green Stalinism wants to do, even though, yes, they've given away some of their control of the economy to the uh, private sector, but not all of it. So China does do some really incredible investments in green technology, while at the same time being I think the worst polluter on the planet last time I checked. Um, so it's just one of those things where like you could have your autocracy or your, you know, m- like less democratic society, whatever, like pursue green policies more doggedly than a market society with democratic, you know, whatever bourgeois institutions um, but if a lot of this pressure for ecological grinding is coming from the state, then that's not going to solve it the way that this council system would, or this council system has the potential to like probably, I mean, I'm just going to say it, the, you know, the rational actor of political economy as inconsistent as it is with most people out there in the world you're probably better off investing your faith that in a truly, you know, democratic communist society, people would make the right call than you are in investing it in an autocracy or, or in a 
dictatorial government. Not because the dictators don't have the power, but because incentives to destroy the environment are just as alive in the state as they are in the market. Yeah, but even like, even not just to destroy things like the actual environment, like if you look at what the, what was the rational decision behind like the Soviet Union having like 10,000 nuclear weapons when any, no one could make a case for more than a couple of hundred, you know, you can't, you couldn't even make a case for more than a couple of hundred. Like a massive amount of their productive capacity was pushed into this completely irrational thing, you know? So it's like, uh, yeah, I think the the most likely you will ever get a rational design answer or a rational decision is out of like a kind of wisdom of crowds because it's it's it basically calculating and interrogating the environment for everybody and not just the environment of a few. Yeah, for the many, not the few. Oh yeah, baby. As a great man once said. <laughs> <laughs> Who was that great man? <laughs> Our revolution. Oh Our God. mild reform. Our mild reform. So let's see. We were... So I think we got into the object... So we were getting into... What is this? We were in chapter 9, talking about the foundation of the production budget. Did we go over to chapter 10, system of general social bookkeeping? Yeah, I think we've done 9, 10, and... Uh, just on to eleven. There's a couple nice equations in uh, in in ten. I'm not gonna not gonna bore you, but you know, uh, at some point I'll probably get all of like the useful equations from this book and put them together. And chapter ten will be one of those that I focus on. Yeah, there's only two. There's like the yeah. There's yeah, where there's, it like, gets there's into... like three equations. Literally, you know, like it, it, there's only one complicated equation, which is the one that's to do with uh, mixed operational units and how you uh, account for their input and output in calculating the FIC. But it, like, apart from that one kind of equation, which yesterday I was trying to figure it out, it did flummox me for a while. <laughs> um, but uh, apart from that, it's all incredibly simple. Just like, it's no more complicated than, you know, uh, capital C plus V plus S or whatever equals... Right, yeah. They're trying to do the same kind. It's 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 almost exactly. It's exactly analogous, yeah. To the point where at some, at some point in this book they actually use the term labor power to talk about labor instead of uh calling it late, you know, labor or something. Like which is maybe too exact a parallel. This is the only time I'm going to do this. I'm going to do the language thing, all right? I'm going to say, you know, they they use the wrong language here for, because labor power was Marx's name for the capitalist labor commodity uh, in the same way that they wouldn't use the word fixed capital here. They say fixed means of production or, you know, circulating means of production. You know, you would not want to use the phrase labor power. Anyway, that point over. Um. <laughs> they, they also, they also say in one place in this version, in the first version, which they don't in the second one, they say that like an individual unit can make a loss, but they don't mean it in, in a capitalist sense. They mean like it's less productive than the other. So there is a couple of times where they do slip into capitalist nomenclature. That's definitely true. I think we should kick chapter 13 to the end because we're going to probably compare it with. uh, We're probably going to compare chapter 13 with the second edition quite a bit um, because this is the one. The economic power of the proletariat. 
versus the way it's phrased in the second edition, which is the economic dictatorship of the proletariat. It's not that much of a difference, but maybe we want to kick that till after we talk about the peasants. Yeah, maybe. Yeah. Maybe. Yeah. I don't mind. Yeah. The peasant stuff we don't need to go into too much, I don't think. We should characterize it in general because I think it calls into question a little bit the differences between the first and the second edition. I might be making a mountain out of a molehill. It's literally one paragraph that I'm really thinking about. Would you like the treatment of the peasantry is not like super antagonistic. Would you say it's the classical left com like fuck the peasants line or something a little more sensitive? I think it's very much not fuck the peasants. You know, I think it shows a really good analysis of like uh, particularly gets into the differences between like the Russian peasantry and uh, the German peasantry in the in, in, in the in the German revolution. He gets into um, so some of this is coming from the I just read it today fresh from the second edition. So I can't remember if it's tying up exactly with the first edition, but he gets into like the breakdown of the peasantry in 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 Germany and why uh, the appeals that were kind of uh, made by Lenin and in Russia, like, you know, uh, land to the peasants didn't make sense in Germany because of the different structure of their, um, of the, of the peasantry. And it gets into also like the, uh, which certain, which uh, sectors of the, of the German peasantry were actually very revolutionary. Typically those that were, uh, working in industry in small towns who had small land that helped them subsist, and they actually managed to like get the uh, the the rural peasants to uh, sell their grain at fixed prices to feed the revolutionaries in the city. So there's a lot of kind of uh, good analysis there. But I suppose one of the major points uh, he's trying to make is about, like, I suppose there's two kind of things he breaks it down into. One is like, how revolutionary is the peasantry? Are they, can they be a revolutionary class? And then the second point is how you would integrate them into a post-revolutionary situation. You know, uh, how would you deal with um, means of production in the peasantry? And I suppose also he does talk about the development of the, the peasants and how that has had didn't turn out a way like a lot of the Marxists were expecting as in that the, the peasants didn't get into massive like huge farms like they weren't like the the peasants actually managed to maintain small holdings and uh, but it, I found some of this very interesting to me I was, honestly like as I grew up in really rural Ireland you know out in the middle of the sticks and you know uh, in my like lifetime the farms that surround my house they have actually consolidated you know that like in in ireland like the types of people who used to be able to survive on 30 acre farm now cannot survive on them most of them either rented or have sold it to other bigger farmers in the in the area so like we've definitely seen in this in the last hundred years certainly in my time in ireland like a, a, i'd say a massive not not to the extent where you've got super large farms, but like I would say if the average farm was like 30 or 40 acres when I was growing up, I would say it's 100 acres now, you know, which is quite a sizable difference. Yeah, that's kind of the trajectory everywhere there's capitalism, really. I mean, that's kind of the big struggle in my, is my understanding in India right now. India right now is that they're basically trying to increasingly marketize um, like countryside agricultural production, particularly because, you know, it's compared to 
modern capitalist agriculture is it's extremely inefficient and uh, a drain on a lot of resources. They're, they're actually trying to push it through with like some like sort of green ideology, oddly enough. Um, but yeah, like the march, the march of basically integrating the peasantry goes on, even if there's still like globally a fuck ton of peasants. But what's important, I think the main question is, to what extent are you de- are you dependent on any surplus from peasant agriculture to fund your industrial base? You know, if you if the, the less you need the peasants, like the easier it is to integrate them into the system uh, slowly in a way that isn't uh, brutal. <laughs> yeah. Because um, this is, yeah, the obvious thing is, you know, what really happens to the peasantry in these societies. I suppose in the long term, there is a capitalist arc towards centralization of agriculture. But, you know, this was written 90 years ago and maybe we weren't in full capitalism then or something. Uh, And for the time that he's writing, there is a sense in which the economists he's citing are wrong and that there isn't the centralization tendency like that's in full flower yet. And if they wanted that to happen, they would have to wait you know, maybe not a hundred years, but much longer than they wanted to in this revolutionary period. Um, so to give the author credit and to also give his, the people he's kind of like saying were wrong. Well, in the long run, they didn't turn out to be as wrong as they you know could have been. Yeah, there's another really important point he makes with respect to the self-sufficiency of the peasantry. You know, this is really key, like that, you know, that he makes the case in Germany that the the peasantry, they weren't like a a self-sufficient peasant, you know, the small holding peasantries, they they were actually specialized, you know, and and if you go to like where I come from, you know, around me in in Ireland, like they're either like cattle farmers, uh, they'll be a sheep farmer, or they'll be maybe a, you know, a tillage or something like that. And, you know, that they don't tend to mix, you know, like, and the farmers tend to do one thing, or they're a pig farmer, or they're a chicken farmer. They do, they tend to do one thing. They're very specialized. And they don't have, like, you know, when my father or mother were growing up, they literally were self-sufficient peasantry, you know, small holding peasants. They, that's what they were. They were hugely self-sufficient. You know, they would have their milk production, their chickens, their pigs. They'd feed themselves, you know, they probably sell surplus to buy clothes, you know, and that's probably the level it was at largely. But like nowadays, and, and even probably, you know, maybe that was Ireland at the time, but like in Germany at the time, he was saying that like these people are largely in the in the in the monetary circuit that they 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 produce surplus to uh, to sell at market to get cash. And like that actually makes the, the 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 farmers not the same as, say, they might have been in Russia or in China during the revolution, that they could just go back to the farm and, and, and everything would be grand. That actually they're fully integrated into the capitalist circuit. And that changes the the nature of of uh, how the, the agri- how you would integrate a a you know an agrarian proletariat or small landholders uh, small landholding peasants into a communist society because like they can't just say well we're not going to sell our stuff to like the cities you're not going to sell our corn because they'd be screwed themselves you know if their tractor broke down they couldn't fix their tractor they couldn't buy fertilizer so that whole introduction of them into the monetary circuit leads them to be much more integratable into 
a communist society. Like if I was a sheep farmer in County Galway and then another one in County Galway and you had a whole load of them and you were able to average out like what is the average, you know, socially necessary labor time or whatever average social reproduction time, production time required for creating like a rare and sheep, you know, like you can do that and you can treat these small ones as like literally small workers councils, you know. And so I think it's a very elegant description of the of the system and how you would integrate them. I, I, I think, you know, it was excellent. Just really, really excellent. Yeah, I, I do want to point out that by this point in the book, and I think this was what we glossed over earlier in section 12 or chapter 12, first edition, is that the new decisive category, whereas we were dealing with average social production time before, we transitioned to talking mostly about average social reproduction time as the, re, you know, the reproduction of the productive unit and the decisive social hour of planning. Um, and so it's average social reproduction time that becomes the fundamental you know unit that becomes value or something that is analogous to the central role that value has and i i bring this up now because the you know in the chapter on the peasants and the revolution skipping ahead a little bit um like the let's yeah because average social reproduction time forms the basis of all relations there's no truck with rent or mortgage debts or anything that would have any anything that w- I don't know. Th- this would be true with pr- uh, production time, as I suppose anyway. But anyway, um, it comes up in the peasants in the peasants chapter and cool. All right, I just wanted to throw that in. That wasn't actually related to peasants, I guess. It's just something to note that's important to the overall structure of the book. Did you notice this, Tom? Because now that I'm looking at this, it's kind of a big deal, but it happens, and I didn't really notice it when I was reading it, I thought carefully. The transition from talking about planning an average social production time to average social reproduction time. I read that chapter the first time. I think I was tired, and I really didn't get the point. Uh, And it's not in the second edition. I think they were kind of just saying the same thing, kind of. It's in a roundabout way. Yeah, like it's not in the second edition. That part, I was wondering, like uh, when I was reading the second edition, you know, I'll hit that bit where I thought, like, you know, I I really didn't get the point that they were trying to make in that that one, and it's not in the second. It's not in the second edition. I could not get the. I could not understand what their deal was. You know, I couldn't understand the difference they were trying to say. It was like they were trying to make a point about, I don't know, what I was going to say, a Hegelian point or something like, like looking at the two the two different ways of looking at the one object, you know, one from a production side and one from a reproduction side. And they were trying to make some like big point about if you look at it from this other way, but I couldn't understand what the big point they were trying to say was. That's, that's what I would say. Maybe I'll have another read of it and maybe I'll be able to make more head and tail of it, but it kind of, it flunks me a bit. It's the only bit in the two books where I felt I, you know, didn't understand the point. It's supposed to demarcate that in some way reproduction is prior. And I could also see how it follows from an emphasis on political economy or something. It, it, it confused me. And now that we're looking at the peasantry stuff, I remembered it. And I'm, sti- I'm still not entirely clear. I mean, I know what the difference is. Producing versus how much it would take to reproduce everything. Two modes of thought. 
And the thing about reproducing, and this is a point that they make earlier, right? Is that it stops, it gets you out of like the producerist mindset where the only people who like, you know, make physical objects or produce value or whatever, like are the only people that count as workers and all these other people that are going to work and not doing that, they're not workers. Looking at things from a reproduction mindset does do that in a, in a way, but I'm not sure how it's relevant in, tr- in terms of their theory of planning. So the fact, if it isn't in the second edition, then that's like very telling and it makes me really want to understand why they thought this was so important or why I guess Jan Appel thought it was so important in the first edition. And if it's so important, where did it go? The peasantry stuff, it seems like, you know, it's basically just the broad thing of like have positive incentives for collectivization. And then that's like the basis that you integrate them. Um, because, you know, you're not going to have the same kind of negative incentives that you would have under a capitalist system where you could, you know, more or less like use monetary tricks to, you know, get him into debt and then drive him out of business and then scoop up their land. Uh, that same this way of doing things doesn't exist. You just kind of have to, you know, offer them, I guess, tractors and <laughs> tractors and whatever. Yeah, whatever else peasants like. Yeah, whatever, whatever you, whatever you people like. They do like they do like tractors. I'm telling you, when I was growing up, it, everything was tractors. <laughs> we were obsessed by tractors. <laughs> They're cool. You know, they got the big wheels. We used to have this, like, we used to have all these, these conversations, like, if you had the world's, if you had the best tractor in the world, and you had, like, the best truck in the world, and they were to, like, go ahead, you know, smash into each other at full speed, which one would win? You know, this is, these are the type of debates I had growing up. <laughs> yeah. Um, <laughs> I guess, um, <coughs> this reminds me a little bit of what we read from, like, the earlier Kautsky period. Where, you know, he's trying to be like, peasants, come on. Socialism, you're going to love it. There's no way that socialism could hurt you. There is no way that anyone called communists will hurt you. Like, you kind of get those vibes, except like less, less naive here. Because it's just laying out essentially a very conciliatory and like incentive based and like a pretty chill way of dealing with the peasantry which I don't normally associate with left communists and that might be because of the sort of Leninoid kind of injection uh, that you get into left communism when it's grouped into this category that Lenin invented (laughs) Um, but I think you see a streak of that kind of stuff in Marxism just generally going back to like the 19th century where you know the small urban proletariat was surrounded by like this sea of reaction you know and that that build there's this kind of siege mentality not entirely unjustified baked into some of this stuff of you know kind of the same way that uh the rest of europe felt about russia generally right like, oh, oh shit here comes here comes the fucking hicks to ruin our fun you know yeah I, I can see that. But, you know, that wasn't universally like a... Uh, or I should say, that wasn't an open bias that, all, like, all revolutionaries shared. Like, it is it is characteristic of Marxists, though. So this book is, I think, doing a decent amount to mitigate that. They'd be like, eh, just leave him alone. You know, like, over, over the generations, 
it'll be fine. Like wasn't that like Marx and Engels like original kind of prescriptions for that anyway? Like you don't forcibly collectivize the peasantry; you just kind of like offer them positive incentives, which and that was the plan anyway. But like it wasn't, you know, the the revolution wasn't supposed to only happen in Russia, <laughs> you know. Yeah, just just Siberia, nowhere else. Yeah, it's one of those things that I, I'm bringing all this up because I think. The chapter 13 in the first edition and the chapter 16 in the second edition that talk about that that are talking about like the economic power of the proletariat or the economic dictatorship of the proletariat. There's a way in which I appreciate the punch up in the second edition because I don't necessarily think dictatorship of the proletariat is a dirty word. I do, however, take exception with this like with something about the framing in the second edition. Um, having a little trouble working out exactly what it is, but I think I'll just read this paragraph. Um, so this is from the second edition, page 273. It's the first chapter, chapter uh, first page of chapter 16, which corresponds to chapter 13 in the original. Finally, we must say a few words about the dictatorship of the proletariat. This dictatorship is self-evident to us and does not really need special treatment because the introduction of communist business life is nothing other than the dictatorship of the proletariat. The introduction of communist economic life means nothing other than the abolition of wage labor, the implementation of the equal right of all producers to the special stocks. It means the, ab it means the abolition of all privileges of certain classes. Communist. Sorry, Ezri. Yeah, what, what? Sorry, Ezri. You said you said special stocks instead of social oh my God. stocks. Okay, equal right of all producers. Stocks. Yeah, excuse me. Um, implementation of the equal right, italicized, of all producers to the social stocks. It means the abolition of all privileges of certain classes. Communist business life does not give anyone the right to enrich himself at the expense of labor. Those who do not work will not eat. The introduction of these principles is by no means democratic, is by no means democratic. The working class carries them out in the most intense and bloody struggle. There is no question of democracy in the sense of cooperation between the classes, as we know it at present, in the parliamentary and trade union system. Um, but if if but if we look at this dictatorship from the perspective of the transformation of social relations from the perspective of the mutual relations of the people, then this dictatorship is the real conquest of democracy. It's worth noting, it's worth noting there that when he says the introduction of these principles is by no means democratic, he has democratic in, in inverted commas. No, that's right. That's what I was trying to denote by, you know, democratic. But yes, it's in questions. And I don't think what he's saying is, hey, democracy sucks. You know, we don't need it. Who cares? But he's saying that like, Okay, so it's not democratic in the sense of cooperation between classes. And by that, I assume they are meaning the exploiting class and the exploited class. Um, because based on the previous chapters on the peasantry, in the second edition, based on the previous chapters on the peasantry, it's not overtly hostile. So it's not, you know, but this is really like, this is really talking about the interests of the proletariat it carries them out in the most intense and bloody struggle. Like this is, you know, it's going to be a fight. It's almost like someone read the first edition when it was like, what are you, some kind of pussy? Like, 
<laughs> Do you know what I mean? Like this is like this one chapter is the most like, hey, look, we love dictatorship of the proletariat, man. We're not trying to block out dictatorship of the proletariat. Who said anything about blocking out dictatorship of the proletariat? Whereas like the first edition, I searched for the word dictatorship of. There's only one reference in the positive to the economic dictatorship of the proletariat. Like, would it be fair to say as well, Esri, that when he's talking as de- when he uses the word democratic in inverted commas, he's also talking about parliamentary bourgeois democracy. That's the sense in which I took it mainly. I think that's fair. I think this is an attempt to sort of like bridge the theory with Marx's use of dictatorship of the proletariat, but also with like the with a, a just a more common like left communist conception that like it is going to be the proletariat's interests that are represented. It is going to be like a, you know, a, a party of war, more or less. Yeah. Well, I mean, it pretty much has to be. I mean, you just you can't do it like through a purely like because, again, like the, the bourgeoisie is going to unplug the Xbox the second they start to lose. So a certain, uh, yeah, that's that's. Yeah, like it, so that it's it's going to be if if the working class is going to become like the dominant class in society, like that they're going to basically they're going to have to ruthlessly um, execute a change in the system that secures that. Otherwise, you're just very easily going to backslide, you know. And that's you know that's what you yeah you want to avoid any kind of like liberal accommodationism. And I guess I guess I could see maybe why they would want to make that clearer, but I don't know. I'm not sure what debates were happening at the time specifically that led them to revise it that way, but I haven't read the revision, so I don't know. I, I I would say as well that like it's also making a case that like say for example you have the peasant class and they are not uh they have so you have a peasant farmer and he has not kind of uh socialized his business or his farm and he wants to stay out of the revolutionary movement. Uh, out of that communist society that he, he won't be able to buy the stuff he needs to continue his farming trade and so and if he wants to be able to get rid of his surplus and not for it to go to waste he's going to have to be integrated into a different economic system which will be the proletariat workers council system based on social labor time calculation and in that sense that the proletariat, even though it's not a, you know, like a bring a, like in Russia, bring the bayonets, 75 men and three machine guns and get the get the um, get the grain, take the grain from them. It is literally that if you want to be able to have an economic uh, relation within society and be able to sell your farmers produce, you are going to have to be integrated into our proletarian or uh, system, economic system. Not that it's going to screw you over. It'll probably do you better. You won't lose your house to the bank, the farm. You won't have your debts. You know, your reproduction needs will be met by the society as a whole. But you will be kind of dictated to by the overwhelming dominant class who controls the means of production. That's like, I think that's kind of the one of the key elements here. Yeah. Yeah, I, th- I think that's the... That's the sense in which I find this like kind of uh, interesting. I don't know, like, because I'm I'm on board for most of this. Like, I'm not like I get dictatorship of the proletariat means like a revolutionary struggle and stuff. But after 
And I, like after a slightly trimmed, you know, discussion about how this will like be good for the peasantry. And this is sort of not explicitly tackled. It's sort of thrown in with, I don't know. It's not explicitly ta tackled on like a political level. I guess what's going on here is that there's an affirmation of what you might call, you know, the political dictatorship of the proletariat. And again, a substantial de democracy rooted in the administration of social life by the working working masses corresponds exactly to the dictatorship of the proletariat. And then goes on to talk about the Bolshevik dictatorship and how that doesn't count. Like it's it's a pretty it's a pretty nuanced notion. And then going on to consider the economic content besides this, you know. And so, and then of course it lends its way to, and the, I don't know, the whole chapter is actually quite good because it develops towards the abolition of the dictatorship in the sense, in the sense that like eventually all producers are going to self-organize. And then, you know, it's not really a dictatorship over the other classes anymore. I just found that Considering how much we talked about peasants, it's kind of just alluded to as being more or less identical or something to the, I don't know, it's, there's no explicit, this is all implication. The problem I have, the problem I have with it is implication. A gesture to the class war with the exploiting class, politically more or less, is all we're getting as the culmination of chapters on the peasantry. It just strikes me a little weird. Left communists are usually kind of honestly bad at politically dealing with the peasantry. And when you think about what the peasantry is in our lives, or, you know, to the extent that there are peasantry, like, you know, it's often, there's the, you know, urban rural divide. And, you know, if we're looking for class there, things can be pretty like rough out in the sticks when they come up against the city. So there is that aspect of it. You know, sometimes peasants that still exist today are, you know, indigenous or, you know, for some reason, you know, not a part of the society at large for ethnic reasons or other reasons. But like, there are these angles to consider, I guess, when dealing with this that I don't feel like it's not sufficiently treated differently in like in this discussion of the dictatorship of the proletariat in a way that raises questions for me. I guess that's the thing because it's not the actual, it's not the endorsement of the concept that bothers me. And because that's something that bothered me about the first edition is that it seemed to cede the term dictatorship of the proletariat to the Bolsheviks. Whereas, I don't know, maybe I'm just never satisfied. I'm just, I want, I want them to say more about this and they don't. I would say that the book really does kind of shy away from actual kind of politics outside of the politics implied by the fundamental basis of the structure of the society. So I would say, you know, the economic laws of, say, council communism, it kind of, you know, uh, and, and putting that into context with, say, you know, social democracy or left, left uh, communism or anarchism or you know social um, or the bolsheviks or whatever it it, it 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 shies away from dealing with politics and i think that it's only approach to the uh 
to the uh, dick prole here is in how it interacts with essentially the these fundamental bases and how that would interact with the peasantry in a revolutionary situation. Yeah, yeah. Like th- there is, you know, there is a discussion about how it is obvious that various parts of the agricule <laughs> will not directly comply with the rules. I did like that. Of- communist operational life i.e. will not join the communist community um it is probable that some workers will interpret communism in such a way that they will want to run the operational units independently but not under not under control of society instead of the private capital so the past the business organization here acts as a quote capitalist um yeah it's it's touched upon but not really treated um it is a dictatorship that is not carried out by bayonet, but by the economic laws of communism, of of movement of communism. So, or the laws of I, I motion, like that. I suppose. I, yeah. Yeah, like I, I definitely like that point. You know, like, you know, I think it's it juxtaposed. You know, of course, our reading of this is all juxtaposed, like, again, say what happened in Russia. But, like, what happened in Russia is not a thing that will happen today. Like, it might happen if there was a communist revolution in Sudan, say, or something. But it's, you know, like that's the reality of it. It's not going to happen in anywhere in Western Europe. Like the farming population in the United States, I think, is 2%. Like I think in Ireland, like it's gone even in my lifetime from like 15 or 20% down to like 5%. And, and there has like, there, that's the reality. And there has been like sufficient concentration and, you know, most of the first world. But I guess I'm not thinking about the first world right now. That's that's where I'm coming from. Yeah. There's there's one thing I I'd like to quote the last bit on this like this on this little Dick Prol chapter. Um, it is therefore a dictatorship which dies of its own accord, dies in commas, as soon as the whole of social life is placed on the new foundations of the abolition of wage labor. It is also a dictatorship which is not carried out by bayonet, but by the economic laws of movement of uh, uh, by the economic laws of movement of communism. It is not the state that carries out this economic dictatorship, but something more powerful than the state, the laws of economic movement. I think that's a very nice way to think about this idea of how the dictatorship of the proletariat is its own grave digger, you know? Much like capitalism is its own grave digger, like the dictator digs its own grave you know, in a way, you know, in this idealist way that we're looking at here without getting into the nitty gritty of politics and war and everything like that, it would literally, it, it is this kind of power relation between uh, like the 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 unit of the society that's being taken over by the workers, being able to dominate those that are left over and out of that productive system. If there is the mass, of, of course, if there is the mass, the mass of workers can mass of people going with this workers councilist approach. I think it's uh, I think it's a very elegant uh, way to talk about the dictatorship of the proletariat. Uh, I you know I really like I know like somebody on the Discord with Mask of the Red Death was giving me loads of hassle about this during the week, and uh, so hopefully we've done it justice. <laughs> well, you know, it's because the second edition makes a point of it. Um. Which I guess is really just to its credit. I so it is like 
treated, but you see it goes from class war with the bourgeoisie or, you know, gesturing towards it to this soft power domination of the peasantry. Absolutely. It's like the, it's like the World Bank given, or no, like, you know, <laughs> it's the, it's the EU given like funds to the Palestinians or something, you know, using their soft power. Yeah, I suppose there's, there's a whiff of empire about this that I think makes me a little uncomfortable. It does make sense that you would want to incorporate workers in, into your, you know, workers economy. You do want it to be attractive. You know, you do want this to spread. Yeah, I don't know. You're not, you're not doing anything to like end their way of life other than offering an alternative that is a good deal. And so that's the, that's the thing. Like, I suppose I assume that in the absence of force, given this like structure that there will be people that never join and then that's cool. I, I think that's what they mean. And I'm, but I think that they assume that it will eventually just spread everywhere. So it makes sense why I care about this. <laughs> well, I mean, if, if like peasants, you know, perpetually have the option of just like, you know, signing up for work somewhere and getting labor certificates and entering into like regular, regular social production within, you know, industrial civilization. You're just going to get like kids going off the farm to just do that. Just the very like long term, just the very existence of that thing will probably lead the peasant way of life as such to disappear. Even if you always have some people, you know, just kind of living off the land just because they want to live off the land. Yeah, there's, there's going to be holdouts and that's fine. Is the way that I think this would go in real life. Hopefully. So long as you're in a situation where you're not dependent on some aspect of peasant surplus as your agricultural base, assuming you already have, like, you can already through, through like, scientifically managed, like, modern, like, farming techniques produce enough food to feed your society. Right, which was not the case in Russia. Right, the peasants, like, hunter-gatherers can do whatever the hell they want. Who cares? Right, right. Yeah. I think that's the difference between, like, the virtuous left communism and the just what left communism means on Twitter, if you know what I mean. Well, yeah, I mean, you can't even evaluate Twitter because I thought, it, you know, because so much of that is just about, you know, like affect and like, you know, this is just everyone. It's like it's like a, it's a video game. It, right. It's a video game. There's a character select screen. But like there's a discourse that left com just means like racist colonialist marxist or something and then i'm like that's so reductive and wrong and then i'll read some left communist you know psyop about how you know britain holding on to its empire and going socialist would have been better than decolonization and it's like oh 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 god okay like um well like frankly most like in my experience like uk marxists are like that you know about say ireland you know they're still they're still like that today like when the when the when the actual like when the actual like McNair and uh, the CPGB are against like the Scottish nationalism say thing get breaking away from the UK and it's like if i was a scottish communist or a scottish proletariat would my, would my life be better under self-determined capitalist rule than rule from the UK there's, there's no question it would be better there's no question that ireland today wouldn't would have a higher standard of living than the UK 
uh, if we were still a part of the U- U- the UK. There's no way it would. So it's like I think that uh, that kind of imperialist stuff is really deep in the imperial countries Marxist traditions to the very core. Yeah, I think well, a lot of the left communist stuff comes from reacting to uh, people who like the sort of tanky tendency to, or you know, even like decolonization tendency to basically stand any form of national liberation uh, as progressive and like conflating that with socialism in some way when they're two different things, right? Like national liberal national liberation. Um, well, yeah, even even if it's still capitalist, can be like progressive in some sense, um, but it is. But that can, for some people, obscure the fact that it's still, you know, not socialism. It's like say the Irish, you know, independence movement was a mix, a mix, but predominantly bourgeois uh, Irish or sm- you know, small holding petty bourgeois Irish re- uh, against you know decolonizing, getting rid of the English. Like, but there's no way that you could make the case after a hundred years, like the, the standard of living in Ireland is n- way better than it is in Wales or Scotland, you know. And in, honestly, it's probably way better than most r- most parts of not London, <laughs> uh, or you know, not the home counties. So it's like this, you just can't make that you can't make that point in Ireland and be made taken seriously. Yet you you have that same stuff and I, I imagine it's similar in america if there's like you know american uh parties you know what about you know we must be against like you know the free oregon movement you know we want we, would, we should be down with down with the free oregon movement <laughs> oh dear it's kind of uh, it's kind of frustrating like when you, when i get that from uh, like british marxists and uh, uh, when there is zero hope of communist revolution right now, and they're against self determination, I just find it quite a very poor argument. Well, it's just a weird hill to die on. So I, that's why I bring this up is because that's the only real intersection with um, I don't know left comms as a certain section of the brain rot internet knows it, and like left communists are can be like really good actually but like okay here's here's that one little bit of intersection again the left communist tendencies on twitter are generally leninist and not councilist there is a whole twitter dis twitter discourse <clears throat> there's a whole like new way of thinking about left communism that doesn't include the non-leninist varieties that's very strange and ahistorical but whatever like I'm I'm just bringing it up because I think it gets to what I found bothersome about this chapter that I didn't find I didn't find it in the economic power of the proletariat and the system of social bookkeeping chapter 13. But I I guess maybe, you know, it's it might be there just not as nakedly. And so this is drawing this out and like I guess this is another way that even if it draws this attention to a head in a way that I find, you know, problematic or something that it is better because it's clearer about what this means like there's one good thing about this book for me it's like it's incredibly clear <laughs> i think it's writing style is excellent i'm still unsure Ezri, how this could have wrecked your brain i still well, don't it's understand be- no that. it's because of Jake, stuff did it wreck you no it's not that it wrecked my brain it's just that we had a conversation where we weren't sure 
what the basic unit of planning in this book is that they're so obsessed with, right? Like it does, it throws you weird curveballs, and I guess this is especially true for the first edition. Like it throws weird curveballs about the most important shit that it's been super analytical about. That's it can be confusing. Like, what is the fundamental unit here? Is it average social production time or average social reproduction time? Go. That's just a, that's just a change in the name. There's no real difference. But like in, the, in the in first the... edition, it is said that that there is a difference, and if you know what I mean, it doesn't make any sense. Yeah, like that chapter is just kind of mad. Like apart from that, like it's very clear. I'll give you that. That chapter was unclear, and that chapter has been completely ditched from the second edition because i assume they just thought it was fucking unclear no one got what they were saying so like i'm not even convinced that there's no difference between the two concepts and i'm interested in what the first book is saying about it however it does seem like it is a much better book in this in the second edition just because like it's like cleaned up a bit and they add a bunch of stuff from the bolsheviks experience Whereas in the first edition, it seems like that he's having a big fight with the theoreticians. In the second edition, they take it to the top socialist politicians, you know, the top communist Bolshevik politicians, Um, which is, you know, that's a more satisfying read and it's more pointed. Yeah, like it probably makes more people be more familiar with the people involved. You know, I thought there was an amazing thing where he talked about like the number of... um, like just from the Soviet thing, this is some really interesting statistics in there. In the second edition, where he talks like about how uh, the you know the workers' councils were. Um, oh, it was about the number of strikes that the unions in the fir- in in the uh, the unions that were in the factories in the Soviet Union, like in nineteen seventeen, eighteen, nineteen, around here, the number of strikes that were supported by the unions. And you see, as the as as they went to like became officially like uh, governed by the central statistics unit or whatever whatever the name of it was, the planning body was that the the unions were integrated into the party, and then like so basically it went from like the union supporting a, a shitload of these strikes to basically after a couple of months and a few months later, like there's basically they're not supporting any of the strikes where the trade unions within the system became the people, uh, you know, working in opposition to the actual workers going out and strike and how the, the nature, the class nature of the society had been set at that point. You know, I think there's some really good bits of, you know, statistical empirical research in it that really clarified their, what in their first edition were essentially theoretical points without the, you know, the, the, the actual proof. You know, they're making these points now and they have, you know, the statistics that are coming out from, you know, from from the Russian analysis, you know, probably internal stuff uh, and not like just some propaganda stuff. Is that is that the whole book? Is that is are we done? More or less. There's the there's the epilogues. I don't think we need them. I, I think they're like, they're not in the second one and I don't think they add too much. The, they, the, about oh no, there is one, them, about, one more point. About half of them are like, about half of the epilogue chapters in the second one. And then, yeah, there's some, there's some um, addendums to the first edition, which, you know, we could, or we could go over, but whatever, who cares? Okay. There's one, the one thing we <laughs> haven't, the, 
Sorry, there is one thing that we discussed beforehand that we haven't discussed yet. That's the in you know the idea the in, this idea of inflation and uh, moving from a monetary system into the social planning system. I think in that one of our other episodes we talked about how they were kind of pro an inflation policy to destroy the currency. But in this ep- in the second edition, it's quite clear that they're not against that they're not for that that they criticize the Soviets for trying to destroy the currency and move to a uh, you know a communist society that way. Here, what they are saying is that they expect there will be inflation in a revolutionary period, like and that just kind of makes sense, like in a war period. In you know you probably have in a revolutionary period you probably have similar destruction of stuff uh like in a war time you will have a uh you will have a reduction in the product in the production but you will have a similar you'll you'll still have the existing money stock so the prices will go up so they say there will be undoubtedly an inflation in a revolutionary period but then they kind of basically they nearly get into like a tssi thing where you calculate your melt and your that's your monetary equivalent of the labor time and so you are, you say like, well, we have this piece of raw uh, machinery here. It's like a hundred thousand pound machine. How many labor hours would that be? And you do some calculation in the economy, essentially, to figure out, well, it's ten, ten dollars is one hour's worth of labor. And then you can reevaluate everything in the economy overnight, like they do when they're trying to get away from a hyperinflating uh, note, like in Venezuela, they've done it or in Germany, where they go right from tomorrow, one trillion Deutschmarks is equal to one new Geldmark. But in in this in in this way, you would say maybe all your money is now kind of you can exchange it for a labor token. They probably won't even allow you to exchange it after a while. Right. Well, no. The like the point is, yeah, any kind of revolutionary situation is going to destabilize the currency, and so you can basically bring in. Uh, labor tokens as a way to quote-unquote stabilize the currency like this is you know this is and while they also say that like on a certain a certain level once all the ruckus is over and production resumes a more stable you know um, sort of reproductive cycle you would then bring in the labor tokens and be like okay this is going to be the new foundation of this going forward instead of doing like you said what they did um in Germany or in Venezuela, where all this, all the previous money is now one unit of this new type of money. Um, yeah, the the beginning section of the epilogue just kind of outlines how what they're what they've sketched out in this book corresponds to uh, Marx's uh, brief comments on labor time accounting and on individuals getting the full proceeds of their labor that you find in Critique of the Gotha Program. Um, it talks about how you know there are deductions that would come from an individual's labor that would be necessary to fund you know general services in society um yeah there's a section on yeah basically inflation and then the last section more or less addresses claims that you know this is utopian speculation they claim uh no it isn't because you know the revolutionary uh upheavals of the time that this was written basically mean that these questions which were before were you could argue were utopian speculation are now a live question and so we need to begin to think about 
what would we actually replace money with? What you know, how would we begin to transition out of capitalism in a meaningful sense, and not just do like say you know market socialism or just you know a highly developed welfare system uh, that would you know remunerate things to workers or pure like state capitalism or what whatever. Um, and so yeah, they they basically then they basically claim that all they're basically doing is laying out the foundations of how this kind of society would operate and they're not drawing up any specific plans for what the broader organizations themselves would be but just rather how economic exchange and how planning and so forth would be accomplished using labor time as the foundation um and then basically that by doing this you can actually have something where the coal question of like federalism and centralism is kind of rendered moot uh, because you have you know different kind of different like purview and because you have like this this subs this common denominator thing it allows all the different sectors of society to plan in a way that is uh, unified in a sense um, without having to yeah centralize things in the hand the what they call like the subjective decisions of like technocratic planners um and so, I mean, in some ways, like you said, this section isn't necessary, but I do think it does do pretty put a puts a pretty good bow on the book as a whole, and allows them to kind of explicate more clearly what what the purpose of this book actually was and what it is that they claim to have accomplished and what they haven't. Right. Uh, so, I I mean, I found the I found the ending, I found the the epilogue. Uh, very useful for that. Yeah. And um, according to the first edition, um, I guess Jana Pell, or maybe just the, you know, German councilists in general, just didn't have Critique of the Gotha program available when they first drafted the book, according to them. You know what I mean? Like, which I find a little hard to believe because it was released by Angles. <laughs> to the German social democracy, but maybe it was suppressed or something. I really actually don't know the historical details of that. I find it hard to believe that German speakers wouldn't have had access to it, but I really don't know the history of the text uh, in, a, in a way. Like maybe this was so thoroughly suppressed throughout the party that even dissident communists didn't have their hands on it. You know what I mean? Like, is that what happened? Like uh, even someone in like the K-Pay Day, you, you know what I mean? Like, or the, or the K-Pay Day, like... Is that is that what happened? Like, I, th that sounds fucking biz very bizarre. Like, if you wanted, if if you really wanted to like piss off the Day, you would as like you know dissident communist organizations make sure everyone read Critique of the Gotha program. But again, don't know the history. Um, <laughs> so uh, they did cut it from the second edition, and instead they just because the first edition works in or at least the, the version of the first edition we read from the internet, which I think was translated in about 1970, like, it does have quotes from Critique of the Gotha program in it. So we, we're reading some kind of altered version of the text. Like, no matter what. I would like there to be some kind of weird definitive edition that synthesizes all this shit. Um, <laughs> but maybe that's just me. Yeah, it actually, it actually has an exact plan for how you would interrelate all the different councils on a planetary level. But uh, <laughs> they felt like if you if you read that, 
uh, you might actually have like some kind of mental breakdown that would because uh, it's just too much knowledge. It's like opening the Ark of the Covenant and Raiders. Like it's just not it's not going to be good for you. There's a new internet standard for uh, how you can uh, decentrally store files distributed across the internet, and it's called IF, IPFS. It's the Interplanetary File Storage. <laughs> and it's actually designed such that it can be done over, like, between interplanetary distance. <laughs> I thought she was about that. <laughs> IPFS. It's the future. It's the future. Last X. Any final thoughts? Yeah, this is a classic. If I do a communist reading it's a group fucking classic. in real life again, I'll probably ask people to read this in the second edition. It would be a cool. Be I cool. think it's brilliant. I'm I'm a, I'm fully down with this description of society, and I think it's fully implementable with uh, and coherent with a a a cybernetic approach because really all they're dealing with is here is the foundational base of the system ones you know and the 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 kind of core economic base relation and i think it's i think it's a goddamn classic i think it's absolutely brilliant i think it's really the second edition in particular is crystal clear um it's got a very good writing style and i think it's full of fundamentally you know, correct insights into, uh, I think, kind of into like Marx's ideas of you know the the labor chits or whatever you want to call them, and the kind of importance for the destruction of the wage system. I just think that it's a fundamental. It for me, it is like the fundamental insight for what we should be. Uh, you know our future party formations like that the thing that we have to fight for is the is literally the the, the theoretical basis that they're shown here and the destruction of the wage wage system that's just absolutely fundamental and the uh labor t- you know labor time pricing uh, average social pricing and uh, general uh, accounting principles that are put here open accounting principles and i think you've got like it's just this, it's very simple I like it makes do you know what it wants makes me want to do right now it makes me want to set up like on github we could start developing like some kind of the accounting procedures and some user interfaces Th- that's kind of what it's got me i would love to like to, to build the stuff now build a blockchain for it put it up there and like get an app on people's phone and show people how it would all work and how simple it all is and how you, how it's all so explainable and all those all those ideas of like people say, but what about like what about uh, you know you know what about who's going to wash the dishes? And you're just going to go like right, have a look at this and tell me that if this is not if this is uh, tell me that this is more complex and more unrealistic than a system of capitalism where you've got wage labor, fucking interest rates, where you've got like stock market, you've got like government debt, you've got your personal debt, you've got like all this shit, you've got homeless people, you've got terrible design systems lack of democracy everything and you show them a very simply designed thing like i just think it's got great propagandic propaganda the propagandistic uh property i just think it's you know well, it's fucking it's it's, it's like more than propagandistic right because it's not even just 
I mean, Marxists are so full of fear of recreating something horrible or just full of like skepticism that they can't, they can't trust anything in their society because it might be marked by capitalism or something. I mean, this is even true for, you know, tankies who embrace a lot of stuff about existing society anyway. But like the thing that Leninists have, or, you know, people that are big believers in state socialism have is they can say, look, we have a model. Okay. And all right, we tried to implement it in the past and it's not here, but it, you know, it got sabotaged by Jews or records or whatever. Anyway, the point is like, you know, they have a plan, they have like an idea and being able to articulate an alternative, you know, whatever you want to, whatever I might want to say about this proposed alternative that, um, in, you know, in theory, especially with, you know, big computing and big data coordination potentials, I hesitate to call it cybernetic, like you can do quite a bit, um, to establish a non-capitalist accumulatory mode of production that a lot of people would call socialist, right? This alternative theory of anti-state socialism, essentially, like a basis for it in like political economy terms in a very simple and like, I don't know, it's, it's almost like an obvious way from Marxist implications. It's very, in my experience, unusual for Marxists to do this so simply and confidently they do it about everything else. Like they understand that the big bang isn't real or something, but they don't apply <laughs> their, you know, like they don't just follow the implications of Marxist thought on communism to build a fundamental political economy of communism, like in this way. So it points to something deeply weird about this tradition that something like Marx's communism that has been modeled this this isn't, this isn't like a big deal. This like, I, I don't know. I, I have read this book before, but like, honestly, it drifted to the back of my mind, like over the years and could, no one, no one gives a shit about it. It seems like it's, it's this, this book deserves to be like really studied. And I look, I, I don't know if this would work. Right. But the important thing is that we have a proposal. <laughs> we have a proposal and like, I let's implement what I'm most interested in. The thing that I think of the positive project that this inspires in me because it's a vision, because it's not just a vision, but it's a theory. It's like a, you know, it's a proposal, right? It's a proposal about how a class of society could work. Like it makes me want to like, I don't know, try to, you know, game it out and see what the incentive structures really are and to see like what, what challenges would come up with incentive structures, because I think that would go a long way to envisioning the potential problems you could face in this kind of society. And, you know, given human behaviors, we understand it, like what exploits would there be to people trying to recreate class in different ways? Um, that's, that's, you know, where my mind goes with this is that this could be, you know, a foundation for research into 
you know, the potential problems of the next world, <laughs> to speak very religiously. Like, you know, to, like the ne- you know, if we have communist mode of production upcoming, like, how, you know, what will its dynamics be like? Why do we have reason to believe that communism would behave differently than capitalism? You know, wh- why do we have... Because, you know, for a lot of people, it is coming from a sort of utopian place where they just have faith in humanity, that they're, they're capable of arranging a complex society in a, you know, democratic, egalitarian way. Like, this does something towards some kind of theory of what socialism could be that isn't just a mustache stamping on a human face forever. Well, I mean, it's and what's important isn't so much to have like a perfect model because there's no such thing. You know, the important is to just have like and have some ideas that attempt to address some of the problematics that we saw in the attempts to implement socialism in the 20th century, right? Like we have this historical legacy. We saw what problems there were, what problems came up, what went wrong. So how can we, on some level, update the model to try and conceptualize something that is both beyond capitalism and a higher and like better stage of human development. Right. Cause that's, you know, like what is, what is like the communist idea? It's the, it's the idea of that, you know, it that capitalism is a historical phenomenon and that it will, it will someday pass into history. And when it does, we want to see it replaced by something better. And we want to see that replacement happen as fast as possible. Right. So we have to think about, yeah, what it is, basically to have something ready at hand or some general set of ideas that you could at least get to a point that you could potentially test within a society. And, you know, maybe one of the other takeaways of the 20th century is, you know, do it with some level of humility because if you try and, like, transition to stuff too rapidly, uh, that can also lead to to disaster. You know, you have to be very careful when you uh, mess around with like how a society is reproducing itself, right? Um, that can go, that can go bad. That can go sideways very easily. Um, but yeah, so I think, like I said, I, I've, I've always, I've been pro time shits for a while. I think it's the best proposal that I've come across for how you would like manage a transition out of, out of a capitalist like money based society while still like dealing with like labor scarcity in in some meaningful sense. So, yeah, I'm very, I'm I'm very sympathetic to, this, to I'm very sympathetic to this test. Having actually read it all the way through now, which I probably should have done before we recorded the first episode, and I, th- I see more clearly what it what it thinks it was it what it's trying to do and what it isn't, and what you know what the I think the claims advanced by the authors in this are very bold, but in some ways very modest. I think I think Tom summarized it pretty well, saying it's all like. It's all like kind of like uh, system one era in, like relations, which that makes sense to me. Um, and it does because it doesn't have to solve again. Like a utopian thing would be something that tried to resolve everything, whereas this merely attempts to explain again like how you would accomplish, you know, like kind of the immediate reproduction of the society without money. Um, yeah, and it, and and kind of like uh, it, it kind of puts out the minimum. It gives us the minimum requirements for kind of a socialist or a communist society to work. That's kind of what's 
the whole strength of it is. You know, it's like it's not given as the like boys need to sit on the left side of the table in the cafeteria and boys on the right or cockshot talking about how we've got too many toilets. You know, it's not there's no mention of toilets. Like that's one of the best things about it. Cockshot did actually mention the overproduction of toilets. Um, you know, it's like, you know, and it's dealing with literally what is the basis for the entire thing, what is necessary. And, uh, you know, what do you know what it's made me do today? I have actually went and bought the Paricon book by Michael Alberts, and I'm very interested in reading it with respect to this and how it fits together and how, you know, just seeing what their political economy and how concurrent it is with this. I imagine it's very similar, to be honest with you. Um, but it'd be interesting to see, because that's kind of like this with a whole fucking system of governance thrown on top of it. So I'll be interesting to see. And honestly, for me, I'm not interested in the ins and outs of this council talks to that council and this one makes this decision and all that. Like, this is the one that really gets to the root issue uh, so we'll see what happens. And there's another one. I just interviewed the fella, a German guy from uh, a German podcast who's into all this kind of stuff called Futures Histories. And he had this uh, some new proposal out by this American uh, professor called Daniel Saros. And it's based on like production of use values, which kind of seems... Uh, like a different approach but it's very interesting now i'm i'm kind of i'm kind of like into having a look at these utopias like this book has really made me interested in looking at them but like i, I feel like if it, if it, if if the proposals don't chime with the what's in here i feel like uh they're not a proposal nearly worth even thinking about to be honest yeah i like to remind people that participatory economics whatever its faults kind of came up in the analytical Marxosphere in response to the prevalence of market socialism being the sort of dominant voice in analytical Marxism. Um, so I am interested in Paracon from that angle. It's usually the butt of jokes that, oh my God, endless meetings, you know, but I, I think like that read of it doesn't take into account like how easy this could be with like access to modern technology as we have i heard a reasonably recent climb i know i've talked about climbing a bit but uh the climbing interview uh, interview on his mhi podcast and they were talking about future societies or something like this and he basically made the point he thinks that something like paracon is kind of like the right track if climbing is not is kind of one of those that is against a kind of transition period which this book, I think, pretty much goes against a kind of a long transition period. It's much more of a revolutionary communist councilist approach. Um, I think that it, it's quite probably quite likely that uh, it chimes with this, especially given like that Robert, Ro, is it Robin Hannell? I was supposed to have him on the podcast one time and I was too tired and I he, he then he would never come on and talk to me again. But, uh, but he... Um, uh, he he slated Kleiman likes uh, the the book. Uh, what is it? The reclaiming capital. He basically, I think it's on the back blurb where he's like, "This is a sarcastic handle quote." So like, if Kleiman has actually taken their big kind of life tome work seriously, the paracon between him and Alberts, I'd say uh, 
there might be something to it <laughs> from a kind of one us kind of uh, looking at it from a kind of critique of Doc Gotha program approach. Yeah, I mean, I said it once, say it again. Ultimately, even though there's obvious differences in the way that the council communists end up approaching politics as, you know, versus what Engels did with Aspay Day. Like, this vision of communism is much more of an elaboration of Marx. And I've been thinking a lot about why we keep going back to Marx and say, like, well, Marx said this, Marx said that. And, like, it would be one thing if only dumb socialists did it, but, you know, smart socialists do it too. And I think it's because Marx has this, like, very enticing vision of... And it's there is a sort of, like... There's a romantic appeal to it, but like, I think the romantic appeal, as Marx might think himself, given his critique of utopianism, like, often really gets in the way of what is at the heart of things and why these these theories and their implications are cherished in a way that later socialist figures it's much harder to do with, is is you know, the emancipatory liberatory heart of the goal isn't so long like in the future it's not so far away um it's not immediate in the sense of you know like snap your fingers and it's done but like the way that a revolution would really be an overturning of one mode of production into another there's no like substitute mode of production while we build up the cool thing that you might live your entire life during like where there's a dissipation of revolutionary energies that, you know, spirals into something depressing. Like it, there is like, yeah, the, you know, the council communists, and this book really seals the deal for me. Does they, they elaborate that sense better. They have problems, but like, if you're like a red thread person and you kind of can't accept theories just based on, whether you think they're true or not, and you need some kind of historical pedigree of going back to great teacher marks as a series of big heads. I mean, this is a very conservative way to think. That's why I'm kind of playing with it. But I mean, I don't know. There's a part of me that, that thinks that way, even still, right? Like just having historical consciousness and being afraid that all theories are warped and distorted by capital and the state and, you know, civilization and, you know, fucking... Uh, chemtrails in the water or whatever like you know being that paranoid like it is a way that i i do think sometimes and so having a link to the councilists that feels like it's it is really an elaboration of marxian uh, principles is comforting it's comforting and the the actual elaboration of principles is more important though <laughs> than the comfort that you will no doubt feel knowing that you are one of the heads in a sequence going back to great teacher marks. That's it for this time. Join us in two weeks where we will be talking about a strange little book by a man named Frederick Lelou. Uh, this is another reader suggestion called Reinventing Organizations. If you'd like to support the show, uh, Check us out on Patreon. Uh, like and subscribe. 
all the things. If you want to get hold of us, our email address is swampsidechats at gmail.com. You can also DM us on you know, the myriad social media platforms that we're on. And we'll try to get back to you in a reasonably timely manner. Uh, so until next time, keep your boots clean, your feet out of the swamp, and your head in the revolutionary clouds of tomorrow. <laughs>